Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I bring you a message today from the people of Ireland. The eyes desire peace with England and with the rest of the world. It is a question of a republic. We want the creation of a new Ireland. I wish to talk to you this evening about the state of the nation's affairs. I wish to talk to you this evening about the state of the Welcome to the history of Ireland. On the afternoon of day seven of the treaty debates, Mary McSweeney stood up, removed her hat, her scarf and her coat and began an almost three-hour speech against the treaty. It was the longest anyone had spoke across the entire debates and as the Irish Times reported, she was eloquent, tearful, ironic, fervent, reproachful, implacable, but bitterness was the driving force behind her every word. Dev saw it as an important speech that, quote, affected the final vote. Like other anti-treatyites before her, she didn't care if Ireland couldn't win the battle. As she put it, if England exterminates the men, women and children of this generation, the blades of grass, dyed with their blood, will rise, like the dragon's teeth of old, into armed men, and the fight will begin in the next generation. But I am concerned for the honour of my country before the world, and I tell the world that it is not the true voice of Ireland that has spoken so flippantly about oaths and their breaking. It is not the true voice of the people of Ireland that has spoken to you. Have no doubt about it, whatever. McSweeney was one of the most fervent anti-treatyites there were. And this was mirrored in the five other female members of the Dáil. Cadiz Makiewicz, Kathleen Clack, Ada English, Kathleen O'Callaghan and Margaret Pierce. Each was extremely anti-treaty. It is interesting to ask why the women were all such hardliners. Some argue that it was simply because many of them had lost husbands or brothers in the fighting. But I just think that's ridiculously sexist and does them a huge disservice. And I actually argue about not putting it in here, but I think it should be highlighted how much these women have been let down by historians to date. My take on it is that these women were radical because to be a female politician at this point was a radical stance. They faced sexism, centuries of disenfranchisement and had a huge amount to lose if the New Ireland stayed too close to the British model. In fact, they saw the whole idea of British rule as morally corrupt. With McSweeney arguing, 
this fight of ours has been essentially a spiritual fight. It has been a fight of right against wrong, a fight of small people struggling for a spiritual ideal against a mighty, rapacious and material empire. And as the things of the spirit have always prevailed, they prevail now. Francis Hackett, a writer at the time of the treaty debates, described the split between the anti-treaty and the pro-treaty forces, saying this, Our people, mine and yours, are separated not by document one and document two, but by scientific spirit, liberty, curiosity and doubt, and romantic spirit, which is altitude, certitude and platitude. I mention Hackett because the historian Tom Garvin takes this further, expanding on his points and breaking the doll into two political subcultures. Republican moralism and nationalist pragmatism. He argues that Republican moralism was, quote, closely connected with the austere and Puritan Catholicism that grew up in Ireland in Victorian times. These Republican moralists tied virtue and moral fibre to the belief in a republic. The more fervently you fought for a republic, the more moral, righteous and Catholic you were. As Gavin puts it, the cult of the republic stands in for the kingdom of Christ. He argues that Dev was the leader of this subculture. Which is probably true, but he definitely wasn't the most moral of the Republican moralists. Arguably, that award has to go to Mary McSweeney, which is why I mention all of this right now. National pragmatists, on the other hand, were Irish versions of the political ideas derived from the English and French Enlightenments. They cared less for symbols and more for finding real power for their country. McSweeney had no time for them, believing they were focused too much on materialism and had lost sight of what really mattered. Garvin explains that Republican moralists believed the morally superior should rule, regardless of the majority preference. The pragmatists argued that it was either treaty or war, and that the vast majority did not want to go back to war. The moralists didn't care. As McSweeney puts it, this matter has been put to us as the treaty or war. I say now, if it were war, I would take it gladly and gleefully. Not flippantly, but gladly. Because I realise that there are evils worse than war, and no physical victory can compensate for a spiritual surrender. See, again, this idea that she's leaning into spirituality. This was how the moralists saw things. Now, obviously, splitting it down into two groups like this is slightly reductive, as the reasons people had for supporting or opposing the treaty were myriad. Even Gavin admits that his theory is a little oversimplistic. And in fact, rather than seeing it as a staunch either-or, republic moralist or national pragmatist, 
probably a good idea to imagine it as a scale, with doll members leaning one way more than the other. But these ideas, for me anyway, and the idea of the Republican moralists, help make sense of those like Mary McSweeney, who most vehemently opposed the treaty. The Republic was everything to them, and their whole lives and identities had been shaped around the achievement of this goal and the new kind of Ireland that a republic would represent. They fought for it and died for it, and now morally questionable pragmatists were giving up and taking the easy way out. I'm sure you've heard it said that this new pro-treaty Ireland would change nothing but the colour of the post boxes. This was not what many wanted. As historian Dara Gannon puts it, Markovitz despised what she saw as the treaty's attempt to entrench privilege in the so-called free state. She saw the treaty as a sugar-coated home rule bill and instead argued for, quote, James Connolly's ideal for a workers' republic, a cooperative commonwealth. When Markovitz in particular argued for republic, She did so because she wanted to totally upend the system. She wanted a new, less capitalist society. That's what the Republic meant for her. And to be honest, it's an argument that's much easier to get on board with versus Dev's mathematical quibbling over oaths. As we explore the final days of the treaty debates and see the split that follows, I think it's important to step into their shoes and understand why they thought it reasonable to tear the country apart. For them, it was everything. And, if you'll allow me a little bit of a left-wing rant, if we look at the Celtic Tiger Ireland that we have lived through over the last 20-30 years, maybe they were right to argue for a new, different, less capitalist Ireland. But anyway, I'll leave the soapboxing to Mary McSweeney. She ended her speech after two hours and 40 minutes, stating, I beg of you to take the decision to throw out that treaty. It was one of the most impassioned arguments against the treaty that had been made so far. Once she was finished, Dev declared, I'm afraid we will have to sit tomorrow night. We wish to try to have the debate ended before Christmas. Griffith then complained about McSweeney's lengthy speech, saying, The whole business was held up this evening by one member who spoke for two hours and 40 minutes. Any person in this assembly can express what he wishes to express in from 10 to 15 minutes. Do you sense an undercurrent of sexism there? I don't know. But it sounds a little bit like, Oi! We had to listen to this woman speak for over two hours. Notice how he says, can express what he wishes in 15 minutes. Anyway, it's true that at this point, people were feeling tired by the debates. So far, 28 TDs had spoken, 15 in favour and 13 against. Almost 50-50. It's said that weariness was evident on the face of practically every deputy in attendance most notably de Valera, who by now appeared haggard and pale. 
The next day, on December 22nd, there was an interesting argument over why the debates were being held in English. In fact, one TD, Liam de Rochta, made a great argument, saying, and I am going to butcher this, but bear with me. Or, we've been talking about words and phrases here for over a week. If we were speaking Irish, we would have no question about the meaning of words as they are in English. Side note, if anyone wants to give me Irish lessons, I honestly really am looking to find some. He was arguing in favour of the treaty and believed that all of the quibbling over dominion versus republic versus free state was a failure of the English language and that it wouldn't matter if they were all speaking Irish. And I have to say, I kind of love it as a way of putting the Republican diehards back in their box. Who cares about an oath in English? We should all be speaking Irish. But by the end of the day, they were still arguing in English and no closer to an answer. I think we should definitely sit through the night, Dev suggested, and take on the debate again in the morning. I propose we end this debate tomorrow. Griffith replied to him, saying, The President asked me a couple of days ago about winding this thing up, and I agreed. Since then, a lady who spoke for three hours stood up against any closure. We offered a choice of time or time limit for the speeches, but there was no agreement. Therefore, we are going on. We may adjourn for Christmas, but we will have no closure. Mary McSweeney was not too happy with this. May I appeal to the House generally against the sneers of Mr. Arthur Griffith at my speech? I consider the fact that what I went through for 74 days at Brixton Prison gives me a right to speak for the honour of my nation now. Now for you, Griffith. In the end, Collins put forward a motion to adjourn the debates until January 3rd. As he put it, I am anxious, for reasons historical and others, that the remarks of every member of the doll should go on record. He suggested working through Christmas, and then there was a great back and forth between him and Markiewicz about who was, quote, the most worn and weary. But in the end, the doll voted in favour of the Christmas break, much to Dev's displeasure. As the debates closed for Christmas, he declared, there must be a common agreement that there will be no speech-making in the interval. And that's where we'll leave things for today, as I want to give the last days of the debate the time they deserve. But don't worry, I'll have the next episode out in the next day or two. So you won't be left hanging too long. Thanks for listening. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and if you're enjoying it, give us a review on Apple Podcasts or tell your friends. It really helps. You can also support the show, buy merch, and get in touch all through our website, thehistoryofireland.com. Or you can follow us on Facebook or Twitter. It's always great hearing from you guys. And if I've made a mistake, please do let me know. The History of Ireland was written and produced by me, Kevin Dole. Additional research and fact-checking by Robert Babington, music by Liam Doyle, and additional help from assistant producer Eva Murphy. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.